Welcome to Podcastica Patristica. I'm Tyler Stanley. In this episode, Gerhard and I sat down with one of our favorite seminary professors, Dr. David E. Wilhite, and talked to him about one of his favorite church fathers, Tertullian. Make sure to check out our show notes at podcasticapatristica.com, where you can find where to buy Dr. Wilhite's books and some other resources. And while you're online, you can find us on Twitter and on Facebook. Make sure to rate and review us on iTunes if you like what you hear. We've also recently opened up a Patreon account where you can donate as little as $1 a month up to however much you'd like. The sky is the limit. Just give us your money. Check it out at patreon.com slash podcasticapatristica. here with David E. Wilhite, author of illustrious books and teacher of illustrious classes at Truett Seminary at Baylor University. Dr. Wilhite, do you want to introduce yourself for us? Sure. Thank you for having me. Um, so I don't know how illustrious, but I do teach early Christian studies uh, here at Baylor University's Truett Seminary. Uh, been here about 10 years. My main area of research is Christianity as it was known in ancient North Africa. Uh, I've branched out in a few other areas, and I'm interested in general development of theology uh, through the early centuries. Uh, I don't know. Does that cover anything else you want to know? Tell us uh, about what books you've written so far. Okay. Uh, My first book was my doctoral thesis that was later uh, revised and published. It was on Tertullian. It's called Tertullian the African, and then it has a long subtitle. I won't give you that. That was in 07. Uh, I co-authored a book on uh, the doctrine of ecclesiology, and that was with Matt Jensen. It's called The Church, A Guide for the Perplexed. I've also uh, written a book on early Christological heretics, and it is called The Gospel According to Heresy, and it traces Christology from earliest, you know, late first, early second century, all the way through uh, the seven ecumenical councils uh, until the eighth century. Uh, And then I've got a book coming out this summer, and it's called Ancient African Christianity, and it's going to trace what I really began with Tertullian and the early sources, earliest sources from North Africa all the way through uh, Christianity's disappearance in North Africa under the time of Islam, so in the uh, medieval times. So we're actually going to focus on Tertullian for this episode. So could you just start by telling us about Tertullian, um, especially as he's understood in the traditional sources? Okay, yeah. Um, I've been working on Tertullian a long time, and he's a complex fellow. I would say he's one of the most misunderstood, arguably the most misunderstood character from all of Christian history. Um, He's seen, on the one hand, as being of the utmost importance because he's the first significant Latin writer. And so he he veritably creates a Christian uh, theological vocabulary. So most of our Christian theological words in the West, like Trinity, this... Tertullian coins the word Trinitas, and justification, we're still borrowing that from his justificatio, right? So these are words that he doesn't entirely make up, but he makes them Christian. So everyone acknowledges his importance at the head of this Western tradition. Uh, But at the same time, because he allegedly converted to Montanism late in life, he's often just uh, dismissed out of hand or seen as helpful only to a point. And so then most of his theology is um, ignored, overlooked especially overshadowed by Augustine. And so, yeah, that's sort of a general, I I think, way that historical theologians have viewed him. Do we know anything about Tertullian's early life? No, other than the fact that we we can tell he was raised in a non-Christian environment, and he tells us of his conversion to Christianity. We can tell that he has a good education, um, one of the best, and so he's very, he, he comes from some sort of elite status. Um, and then there's there's some argument about exactly what what class he would have belonged to. What uh what years might someone 
think that he was born. Yeah, we you generally see it written as born around 160, and that's just a, a guess uh, as to when he really starts writing in 196, and then he disappears by at least 220, probably earlier than that. Uh, last, you know, really certain writing is around 212. So what happened to him? No one knows. What was he doing before he was writing? No one's sure. And it was a pretty narrow window that he wrote in, wasn't it? Right. So we're talking just over a decade. Yeah. Yeah. Some might call him an international man of mystery as a Roman figure. You could call him that. (laughs) Okay, so let's talk more specifically about what we know about Tertullian, uh, what we think about Tertullian, and what we're wrong about Tertullian. All right. Kind of facts about his life. Yeah. Yeah, so the... I would say the traditional narrative about Tertullian really focuses on his uh, status as a Latin writer. He comes from a very Roman context. He's thought to have been a Roman jurist because uh, this, this means he's an expert in Roman law. And um, he, he, there, there is an, a recording, uh, a text that has been found that lists uh, a jurist from Rome named Tertullianus. And so some even used to speculate that was the same one. His writings seem very familiar with Roman law, and he, he's, he's concerned about the illegality and injustice of Christian persecution. Um, lots of other details people throw out about him. His father was a pro, uh, one source says a proconsular centurion. He was a priest. He, um, he converted to Montanism late in life. I mentioned that. Um, he's generally seen as a champion of fideism because he, he has some, some nice one-liners about th- things like what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem. So don't listen to Athenian philosophers. Just don't even think at all. Just use your faith. That's, those are sort of the general uh, ways he's depicted. But again, the, over the last 40 years, there's been a real major shift among this, the experts uh, and virtually everything I've just said about Tertullian has now been thrown out. What, uh, what were some of the early scholars who started questioning the traditional narrative on Tertullian? Yeah, um, no, I think that's probably important to the narrative is um, Timothy David Barnes wrote a work on Tertullian in 1971 where he, he really reassessed everything we knew about him and tried to look hard at his life background arguments, all of that. Uh, The key thing that I think he did was the main source that tells us all of those facts about uh, Tertullian's life was Jerome. So Jerome's writing much later, uh, you know, late 4th, early 5th century, and when you see the distance between Tertullian himself and Jerome writing about him, Barnes rightly questioned whether or not Jerome is really reliable on those sources. So the first linchpin to fall was uh, this this idea that his father was a proconsular centurion. I mentioned that. Um, Barnes questioned this first off because he can't find any evidence of such an office in the ancient world. What, is, what the heck is a proconsular centurion? Um, what, my next question. Yeah, no one knows is the answer. <laughs> um, and so Barnes began looking into why Jerome might have said something like this and there seems to be a confusion in one line of Tertullian's Apologeticum, his, his apology, Defense of Christianity. He talks about how in my patria, my homeland, my fatherland, these things happen. Children were sacrificed uh, to Saturn and uh, the, the centurions of this generation could tell you about these things. Uh, instead of reading patria, fatherland, Jerome must have read Patri, father, my father, a centurion who could tell you about these sacrifices happening in the proconsular region of Africa, Africa proconsularis. Um, that must have been what he what it did. Now that seems like a bit of a, a stretch, right? Or, or almost too shaky of a, of a evidence or question. But we actually have a codex of Tertullian's Apologeticum that has that scribal error in it. And so maybe Jerome didn't misread Tertullian. Maybe he was handed a faulty manuscript of Tertullian, and that's where he gets that idea. So once that starts to fall, many others really start to question other facts, so-called facts about his life. Um, so text criticism is actually important for something. Always, yeah. It's not always, just the New Testament. Always got to start with the basics, yeah. All right, so um, talked about his... His family, we don't know much about his mother, I'm assuming. Never mentioned. Okay. How about his career? What was, uh, 
what was his church career like? Maybe we can talk about his civil career a bit later. Yeah, sure. Uh, so Jerome assumed he was a priest, and that's a fair assumption, just because otherwise, why does he have all of these texts that are Christian teachings? Why does he have an authoritative voice? The problem is Tertullian, two places, tells us he's not ordained. And so he's not a priest, he's not a bishop, he's not a deacon. What is he? Um, maybe he's just an interested layman. Maybe he's just a disgruntled guy who's well educated <laughs> and, and, and can get a bully microphone. I don't know. But um, there's one theory that I, I find convincing uh, that he may have belonged to a, cl- a specific office known as the Signores Laici. The Latin term means uh, the lay elders. And this office is only found in Christian churches in North Africa. Um, there was a class of, of Christians that, that were men, of course, that seemed to have some sort of authority and some sort of governance in the North African churches. And they're elders, but, but with the Latin term seniores, not with the borrowed Greek term presbyteroi. So when Latin writers will talk about their, what we later call priests, presbyters, They just borrow that Greek term to talk about the office below the bishop. But then there was another office that Latin writers could use, North African writers could use the Latin term seniores, elders, and they were something like a governing council. So maybe he belonged to that. The, the, The one real problem with the theory is there's no certain evidence that that group, that that board was in existence as early as Tertullian. Most of the evidence comes in the Donatist and Augustan period. Uh, Cyprian, for example, who's between Tertullian and Augustan, says nothing about the elders. So why is he so silent um, if this was an important office? But maybe that's where the confusion comes from, is Tertullian was a presbyter, not a presbyter, but an elder. Okay. And this, is this more lay leadership in the church in North Africa than other parts of the empire? Is there any reason for that? Is there something about Africanness that promote that? Or Good question. Uh, Brent Shaw is a Princeton historian who has argued, he, he shows that in the, the, the pre-Roman North African societies, there was this office of uh, an elder council that governed towns and villages. I mean, even the sources on the Punic Wars, ancient Carthage was governed by an elder board. I mean, they didn't call it a board, but yeah, right, yeah. The, the elders of the, of the city. Um, and so Shaw argues that this was just natural for North African Christians. They kept that mentality. And so even though these aren't the official officers that will be brought into North Africa with Christianity, bishops, presbyters, deacons, they still had uh, that authoritative role in the church. Okay, so you mentioned that Tertullian... Tertullian allegedly became a Montanist. So yeah. tell us what is Montanism and why Tertullian is associated with it and why we should question that. Okay, good. Uh, so the, the first question is the biggest. Why, what is Montanism? Again, Montanism is one of those things that people, writers like Jerome, and I'm sorry to keep picking on him, but he's just a good example. Eusebius, later 4th century writers, saw Montanism as this very distinct thing founded by Montanus and his, uh, there were two prophetesses associated with him, Priscilla and, and Maximilla, and then other followers, and they seemed to have this idea that the, the Spirit of God, the paraclete was their, their favorite word for him, for the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God not only continued to speak prophetically through individuals, but speak in powerful ways that allegedly could even override what the Scripture said. So um, this gets Montanus into all sorts of trouble. People hear Montanus saying things like, I am the paraclete. And he says things like, Scripture is allowed marriages. I forbid marriages. Um, And this especially was seen as um, a sort of rejection of uh, traditional authorities, not only Scripture, but the bishops. And so in, in sometime in the, around 170, Montanus and these prophetesses and the group with him in a part of Asia Minor called Phrygia, they are prophesying and somehow come into conflict with other churches. Now, the, that seems fairly straightforward. Um, the problem is when you look around, there are a lot of groups like Montanus who believe in ongoing prophecy and believe in things like the, the ideal of celibacy and the normativeness of celibacy. Um, so just how fairly they were treated is now hotly debated. 
Maybe Montanus himself didn't say, I am the Holy Spirit, but maybe when he, uh, in his mind, he was possessed by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, and is prophesying, he could have said something like, believing the Holy Spirit was speaking through him, I am the Holy Spirit, and I am telling you to fast more. And so that's not quite the same thing he's accused of. Um, he doesn't claim to be the incarnation of the Holy Spirit in that sort of revisionist model. Yeah. And that sounds a lot like what Old Testament prophets would do, thus saith the Lord kind exactly. of thing. Exactly. It sounds a lot like what um, non-Christian prophets and oracles would do in this region of Phrygia. So this is just a common Mediterranean way of speaking when, when in prophetic mode. Um, now, there are some specific things that he seems to say that gets him into trouble. Uh, he claims that uh, New Jerusalem is going to come down literally in this region of Phrygia. And apparently he got the, the location and date wrong, and so he had to then try again a second time. And then, uh, best we can tell, the New Jerusalem still didn't come down. And, uh, Did he have a radio channel and put up billboards around Waco? <laughs> they haven't been found. Uh, <laughs> many of his inscriptions and graffiti have been found, so who really? maybe it was similar. Um, nice. Were they warnings about the day? And... Uh, what are they? Sorry, I've forgotten what no, the inscriptions no, no are. William Tabernay has a book on Montanist inscriptions. That's where you can find them all, and... Um, so take your, you know, $300 and go to your local Amazon and order that today. There you go. Yeah. Um, so Tertullian and people in North Africa get accused of being Montanists. And in some ways that's a valid accusation because Tertullian writing about two decades later mentions Montanus, Priscilla, Maximilla, and he defends them. Specifically, he defends them against the Bishop of Rome who had, uh, who had denounced them. And so what exactly Tertullian is defending then comes into question. In the traditional sense, again, see, here he is. Here's where he starts citing Montanist prophecies, and here's where he starts talking like a Montanist. And so he must be a Montanist. Now, uh, am I clear so far? Am I yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so while that's what Montanism was and sort of has been in revisionist thinking kind of kind of given a a, a, a different hearing I, I guess people would try to say a more fair hearing the other key to this puzzle is Montanists didn't call themselves Montanists um, there's even an argument that Montanists didn't found the movement maybe Priscilla did maybe it should be called Priscillianism or Max uh, Maximilla did and and it's just the later heresiologist assumed this must be founded by a man and so the heresy is named after the first heretic um, so, because Tertullian never mentions Montanism, what the Montanists called themselves was New Prophecy, the followers of the New Prophecy. So they believed in the Spirit's ongoing prophecy. Tertullian will talk about the New Prophecy. Um, now, again, the 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 scholarly view on this has shifted pretty dramatically. So back even when Timothy David Barnes, who I mentioned in 71, is talking about Tertullian, uh, he, he's just assuming there is this clear break at some point. Uh, scholars throughout the early 20th century had either one clear break or a time where Tertullian starts to look Montanus, his middle period, and then becomes really angry Montanus. And uh, you can tell that because he's fighting the so-called Catholics. Again, he doesn't call them Catholics. He calls them the psychics. Uh, the Sikhi, the ones who are uh, who are like what Paul uses this word, right? Those who are who are born by a soul, a worldly soul, not the spirit. So um, it is true that Tertullian starts to do that. But what scholars have really done, uh, 1976, uh, David Powell questioned this, and then another scholar. Um, uh, oh, I'm. I know I shouldn't blank on his name. Uh, I'll come back to his name in a moment. But um, that, so scholars really in the late 70s through the 90s has started to say that Tertullian really shouldn't be understood as breaking with the first Catholic Church of Carthage and going and joining a schismatic group. He never speaks of himself as removed from the church. He thinks of himself as still a part of the church, as still under the bishop's authority, as uh, he mentions councils that he's uh, that, that's taking place, he, and he never distances them. All of the, all of these so-called Catholic, right? The main the main body of Christianity. He never distances those from a Montanist or new prophetic group separate from that. Um, the best sort of the closest it comes is the idea that he belonged to this small group within the church, uh, what's been called an 
an ecclesiola in ecclesia, right? A little church within the church. Um, so maybe there was a group that had, had started reading Montanist texts or been influenced by a Montanist teacher, and they believe in ongoing prophecy, and they believe in some of the more rigorous stances of Montanism, and everyone else was unhappy with it, but they still sort of got along. Uh, that's probably still the majority view of Tertullian. Uh, there have been a couple of people that have uh, argued, and I'm, I'm one of the ones, I, I, I find even evidence for an ecclesia, ecclesiola in ecclesia just to be non-existent. He never mentions such a group. The closest thing he mentions is in his work, De Anima, on the soul. He talks about a woman who, who would often prophesy in church, and because they don't want to blaspheme the Spirit, they would not interrupt her prophecy, but they would wait until the end of uh, the service. And it says, and some of us would stay to interview her and, and test the spirits and see, was this really of the Holy Spirit? Now, I don't think that's a Montanus group meeting separate. Uh, Tertullian doesn't give any hint of that. I think this is probably a group of lay elders who are staying afterward to interview her and to test the spirits. So that sounds uh, a lot less like someone sub, uh, supplanting the authority of Scripture and more like what we might see in the New Testament with the daughters of what's-his-face who predicted the famine. Right. Is that, uh, does that show that Jerome's thoughts on prophecy in the second century was more um, inflammatory than representative? Well, uh, but I think they're more representative of mainstream Christians in the late 4th century. So even by Eusebius's time, there there is a clear break now between groups who are still saying they belong to the new prophecy and other official teachers of the church, bishops like Eusebius. So if you're writing from the 4th century and someone's defending Montanus, well, they must be on the other side. If you're writing from the late 2nd, early early 3rd century, I just don't see a clear break yet, especially in Carthage. Tertullian, you're right, this teaching doesn't sound like anything other than what you find in the New Testament. Tertullian, for example, never says that marriages are forbidden. He simply points out that Jesus preferred celibacy, Paul preferred celibacy, the Spirit seems to be leading us into celibacy, but marriage is permitted. Uh, now, he does have this view that you, if, if your spouse dies, you can't remarry. Now, that, that's not technically bigamy because you're not married to two women at once. It's digamy, D-I, uh, it's like sequential marriages. He doesn't think you can do this. And again, he's reading uh, the pastoral epistles where a bishop uh, is supposed to be the husband of one wife. And that's how uh, many early texts interpreted that passage. So this is the Christian ideal. Tertullian defends that. Uh, if he finds that Montanists are defending that, great. He defends their, them for doing the same. I mean, another element is the idea of ongoing prophecy. Tertullian defends the idea of ongoing prophecy, but I don't think he sees that as a break from mainstream Christianity. In his mind, this is what normal Christian services include. Uh, Cyprian, after him, continues to believe in ongoing prophecy and visions. The vast majority of our texts from North Africa after this continue to believe in ongoing prophecy. So I just don't think it at all helpful to think of Tertullian as in any way different than what he was because he defended the Montanists. So, um, I mean, that's a live topic in at least evangelical circles today. Um, the argument between the sort of neo-reformed types and then the charismatic types, okay. all within yeah. one big branch. Um, yeah. What? So what's the historical, um, the historical narrative we might put together about the notion of prophecy in the church what happened between Paul and Luther? And... Well, let's see. There, there's sort of a general historical consensus is always tough to say consensus, but a gen I think a lot of historians kind of accept this idea that Paul and the earliest Christian communities, at least Gentile Christian communities, were very happy with sort of a free-for-all, spiritual, gifted um, worship. You know, the liturgy was just led almost, if not impromptu, by people who had certain, certain giftedness. So if you've been given a song, you sing. If you've been given a word, you prophesy, etc., etc. And then there seems to be this move away from that soon after Paul, where you have official teachers of the church, and the two somehow have to merge together and synthesize. 
And what you see in places like Montanism and others is this sort of ongoing um, backlash to that. And uh, there's this uh, more charismatic um, side kind of, you know, in a negative sense, wielding its ugly head or in a positive sense, finally arising back from the oppressive you know, bishops, um, so depending on which side you're on, you know, this sort of thing continues to, to happen. There is this dialectical tension between the, the institutional church and the charismatic church, and that happens throughout all Christian history. It's probably a lot more complicated than that, but um, that's, again, how a lot of historians would see it. Okay, so you don't see a clear, like, historical winner. It's just period A, it's more of the institutional in power, and period B, the charismatic groups start to rise up again and have influence and then just a cycle like that yeah something like a period a would be the just charismatic no institution early early strata yeah period b i mean if you're going to say they're winners well the the bishops definitely won out right um but you that's when you would say there are still these pockets of resistance or pockets of something that um charismatic elements continue to be there the reason it's um it's more complicated than that is because you you often have um you know, bishops all over the place that would be official teachers who would dis who who would rebuke groups like the Montanists, and yet would still allow for spirit-led things to happen in their church. Would still believe in prophetic things happening. Cyprian, there's no one more staunchly defend uh, staunch defender of of the bishop's authority, the centrality of the bishop, and yet he's happy for visions to take place in his church. Um, you know, uh, there there is there is an awareness of. He, he believes the spirit is still working through all the different people of the church and sometimes in, in what would be wondrous ways. But yeah, so that you can have the two things hand in hand. Let's talk a little bit about Tertullian as a rhetorician. He's known as extremely skilled in rhetoric and often that leads to some pretty entertaining yeah. and downright dirty lines from Tertullian. <laughs> So uh, tell us a little bit about rhetoric in the ancient world. Is Tertullian just a complete jerk? Um, how does rhetoric work in the ancient world, and how does Tertullian fit within that? Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, and to us, he would be a jerk. Uh, in his world, this, he would be entertaining, and maybe sometimes a jerk. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I mentioned earlier he was, a, he was once thought to be a Roman jurist, a Roman lawyer. That's probably not the best way to think about him. He doesn't seem to have to be interested in the sort of technical side of Roman law, but he is skilled. He is trained in the, the basic skills of rhetoric, which would mean you would be sometimes called into a law court to defend a, a, your client, and he would need to know enough Roman law to to make his case. And he is, he is very gifted at making his case. So instead of seeing him as a lawyer per se, probably see him as something like a rhetorician, uh, a uh, you know, the art of persuasion is really what he's trained to do. And he's ruthless with that art of persuasion. And so, yeah, he's going to use every trick in the book, ad hominem arguments, right? So if your first thing you're going to do is discredit your opponent and whatever it takes to discredit your opponent, you do that. Uh, even if to us that would seem mean-spirited, uh, he's assuming his opponent's going to do the same to him. And the whole audience is assuming that. So it was a different set of rules for them than what we would say. Do you have any, and if you don't, if you can't think of any, then that's fine, but do you have any favorite lines of Tertullian, maybe some of his accusations and ad hominem against Marcion or oh, anything yeah. like that? Yeah, there's, well, there's so many. So narrowing it down would be the hard, the real favorites. Uh, <laughs> some of the highlights would include, you know, he, um, well, yeah, so the ad hominem, he, his, his whole book against Marcion, Adversus Marcionum, he, it starts with this long diatribe against the region of Pontus, where Marcion's from. And he tells about all the things that are wrong with Pontus. It's, it's barbaric and it's uh, backwoods and the people there are uh, maybe cannibals. And he just goes through <laughs> all the horrible things they do. I mean, and it's, it's, again, to modern day sensibilities, it's stuff you don't say. For example, he's, he's, he's at, he thinks it's absolutely shocking. Uh, his audience will be absolutely repulsed by the fact that their women go around topless. Um, and he says they do their household chores not with brooms but with battle axes. You see, so <laughs> he could, really that. yeah, yeah. So how could women, you see, do this sort of thing? And, uh, <laughs> and they're uncivilized because they're they ride around in caravans of wagons. You know, they don't have a real city civitas to be to be in. So there's our word civilization coming from that. Um, and then after this long thing about how 
how terrible the climate is, how cold the water is, how dark the sun is. The worst and most barbaric thing of it all is Marcion was born there. <laughs> so uh, Worse than the battle axes. <laughs> even worse than women with battle axes for Tertullian. Yes, that's right. Which is saying a lot for Tertullian. <laughs> um, you know, so his argument, I, I think, um, again, people to, to help with this, Ronald uh, Sider had a book in, I think it was 1971, on the, uh, the art of rhetoric in Tertullian. And uh, Jeffrey Dunn is a more recent scholar who's done a ton of work in this and just really shown that understanding the classical rhetoric that you would find in people like, I mean, going all the way back to, to Aristotle, but more in Tertullian's time, people like uh, Cicero, Seneca, Quintilian, these rhetoricians have handbooks of how to do this. And when you read those, study those, and then read Tertullian's argument, you can see he's pulling out all of those best tricks of the trade. So the, I think this makes it really difficult to understand Tertullian because sometimes he's arguing, he seems to say something that he can say the exact opposite thing at another treatise, and it's hard to know which does he believe. And, and so I think the best way uh, to try to read him is, is you're not trying so much reading what he says. You're reading what he wants his audience to do. So he has a work on um, De Cultu Feminarum, on, on the dress of women. How should women make themselves appear? That has everything to do with hair, makeup, clothes, all of that. And uh, what's... I think seems to be the key in that work is he doesn't want women, one, dressing immodestly for, for sexual temptation reasons, but even it seems to even more than that is he doesn't want women dressing in, in uh, grotesque displays of wealth. And so why not wear wealthy things? He gives every argument in the book, but he doesn't seem to really care about any one of these arguments. He just thinks it'll persuade you. So there's a, there's a section he has on uh, purple. Don't wear purple robes. Why not? Well, if God wanted you to wear purple wool, he would have made purple sheep. Um, <laughs> Love that know, argument so it's much. It's a great argument. It's one of my favorites. Uh, it's terrible logic, but, you know, it, if that doesn't work, he moves right on to another argument. And, you know, so, yeah, his rhetoric at times can seem in, illogical or inconsistent, but I think if you were sitting in Tertullian's audience and he just came rapid fire with one argument after another, and they're all witty, they're all pithy, I think you could not help but be moved by what, you know, the things he says. I think everyone in that day of class um, always comes in hating what they just read. And, I mean, this is often in Texan traditions one, uh, have no idea what we just read, and then Dr. Will Hyatt just makes it uh, clear and persuasive. I think the best illustration you gave from that day was you mentioned going down to... Um, the cafeteria here at Baylor, and oh, yeah. Tertullian would think it was extremely problematic that you could tell who was a professor and who was a maintenance person by the clothes they wore. Right. And I just thought that was really persuasive, and I've thought about it ever since. Mm. Yeah, I think Tertullian would like all Christians to dress simply, and if you're a Christian lawyer, a Christian professor, a Christian doctor, uh, that doesn't give you a right to wear an Armani suit and gold cufflinks and all of that. He would want he would want the Christian lawyer and the Christian maintenance man to wear roughly the same thing. One thing that I always think of when I read Tertullian or hear someone talk about him is the line in Ephesians about not letting any uh, what is it hurtful word come out of your mouth right. and be filled with grace. Yeah. How might Tertullian read that line and defend his own really vitriolic practice of speaking and writing? Oh, that's a good question. I, 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 would, I, sh I should look it up to see if he actually addresses that line. You know, um, a couple of things he might say. My, my hunch is, first off, he would say, yes, that applies. Paul's talking to Christians who are dealing with other Christians, right? So in the household of faith, we share all things in common. There's no need among us. But, uh, you know, in the household of faith, we, we speak no unkind word to each other. Uh, but when we're talking to the enemy... Right, we got to speak truth to power. Is probably the sort of thing he would say. And even then, I, I suspect he he might say Augustine says something similar to this later. Um, to 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 compel someone, to persuade someone, is kind. And so, if you're speaking to an opponent who has an unchristian view of something, it's your duty to speak the truth to them. And uh, again, I I suspect. 
some of that is special pleading on Tertullian and the ancients part. Some of it is an oversensitivity on our part today that we think if you, you know, if you say something that isn't as uh, deferential and kind as possible that you're being somehow unkind. Maybe. I mean, that's a perfect example the other day with Bernie Sanders talking to the uh, person that they were... What was that hearing? There was some hearing, and Bernie Sanders talked this. to one of the people and got on to him for saying that, <clears throat> as a Christian, I don't believe that Muslims are... You know, I believe that Muslims are condemned as a Christian, and so Sanders said, you can't do that. You can't be in government. Oh, right. You're not worthy of government because... Right. He said that. that. Yeah. Wow. So... I mean, that's kind of displays the, the other side of it, the oversensitivity to this is our religious belief and you can't believe that belief. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think you would even see it today in churches, um, right? I think all churches today struggle with the idea of church discipline. How do you ever tell someone they're wrong and they have to change? Who are you to tell me I'm wrong or how unkind of you, you know, get the log out of your own eye before you get the mode out of our eye? Um, but telling someone that they have strayed from the path uh, and maybe even doing it in harsh tones. I, I do that for my children, sometimes in very harsh tone, and it's out of love. So, you know, it may feel unkind, but I think that's the sort of thing that Augustine, at least later, and maybe Tertullian already would say, um, just because my tone, just because my rhetorical tools may not feel kind, that doesn't mean they're actually unkind. Hmm. That's actually really helpful, my yeah. own thinking about Tertullian. So you mentioned earlier uh, Tertullian's book on the apparel of women. So yeah. Tertullian is known as a pretty misogynistic dude. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about his thoughts on women. And uh, is this another area in which we can say Tertullian wasn't actually a misogynist? Oh, we, can, yeah. we can cross that off the list and rethink him, revisionist history. Uh, you can, and there are some scholars who have tried to do this. Not many. Most are going to read Tertullian and say, no, he's still got a problem when it comes to women. Um, I'm one of those who still thinks deep down, or I can at least say at a theological level, I think there are clear problems with Tertullian. So what are some of the things that he would say that are problematic? Yeah, okay, now then at the at the rhetorical level, there are some things to say that, that we cannot do today that he does, not just because we're politically correct, but because we've seen that this kind of like violent language, violent rhetoric against women has resulted in horrible things. Um, so at the rhetorical level, he is incredibly harsh when it comes to women. And that's where at least reading him in his rhetorical context makes a little more sense of him. We don't have to see him as quite the woman hater that we thought he once was. Uh, even if we're not going to adopt that kind of talk today. So, for example, that work, De Cultu Feminarum, he starts off um, with, uh, you can almost hear him shouting at the women in his audience. He's speaking to all women. He says, uh, you are each an Eve. Uh, you, he says in Latin, tu es diaboli janua. You are the devil's gateway. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And uh, talk about, this is what you mentioned earlier, Gerhard. This is when, when my students read this and come to class, they're usually not happy. Uh, <laughs> not just the women students, but you're right. This is, uh, this is clearly over the line, Tertullian. Who do you think you are blaming all women for the fall of all men? Um, now, when you get into his rhetoric, though, uh, by the way, when I usually kind of try to scream that out uh, in my Tertullian impersonation, uh, generally the class laughs at that, right? Because it is kind of funny to watch somebody carry on like that. Um, when you see him in his rhetorical context, you come to see that actually it doesn't seem that anyone in his audience is actually doing all the things that he's against, right? They're, they don't seem to be having all this extra costly jewelry, extra costly garments, all the cost it would have had for makeup and hair and upkeep. So if the women in his audience are actually agreeing with everything he's saying, they might have actually been laughing along with some of his jokes and nodding along with the points he's making. And it may not have come across as quite as harsh to them as it does to us. Would this have been kind of like a, uh, a jab at maybe elites in the society, maybe elites in Rome? I think so. I think it's a jab at uh, wealth in particular, in, in, yeah, in particular, um, but specifically uh, Roman forms of wealth that's come into North Africa. So they might, you know, the word might be you, but the audience might understand it as like a rhetorical you, as in the, the people you also don't like. That's right. I think the, when you first hear him saying you, 
plural, the audience assumes it's them. But when he starts describing how you wear these clothes and you wear purple garments, I mean, who wears purple garments in the ancient world? Royalty, right? The, the, um, this is a symbol of Roman power. Um, so when I think as the text go, moves along, you realize, or his audience would realize, he, he's not talking about us. He's talking about all the, one, all the people that we are also shouting at and wish, wish we could shout at and wish we could speak to. Now, again, the the... the his view of women, again, I'm not trying to sweep the problems under the rug when I say that. Um, so he has a work uh, on baptism, De Baptismo, where it's uh, a woman teacher from what he calls the Canaanite sect, the followers of Cain, not Seth. Uh, and they, they're, they're, best we can tell, something like we would call a Gnostic group, and they don't perform baptism. And the teacher turns out to be a woman. And he uses every trick in the book he can against this woman because she's a woman, you know, uh, ad homina arguments, I guess. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so in his attack on her, he even seems to reveal some of his own theology, right? He has a point where he says baptism is to be practiced the right way. So who should baptize? The bishop should baptize. Um, but if the bishop's not there, you can still perform a baptism. Next in line would be the presbyter, the, the elder. Uh, after that, the deacon. But if none of them are there, anyone can baptize, at least any man. You know, so, I mean, why is it that women can't baptize? He's probably assuming what most Christians at his time assumed, but he doesn't even seem to raise that question. And there's lots of instances like that where you could find Tertullian's assumptions about women are very problematic. So I don't want to completely give a revisionist stance on that particular item. So women teaching in the early church... Um the only other example I know of is the Paul and Thecla story that was really, you know, uh, hated yeah. early on because it had a woman baptizing. Was it a woman baptizing or teaching? Uh, both. Okay. Tertullian is the one who tells us that the acts of Paul and Thecla are fabricated uh, okay. by a priest. And he points out that some Christians are using that text to justify women baptizing. Thecla baptized herself in our version of the text. Apparently in his version, she was just baptizing period. And he says, no, 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 you can't use that as a proof because that source is a, is a, pseudo, a pseudonymous source. Um, but that's not the only example of women teaching in the early church. There are others. And Tertullian actually gives us others that he defends. So he mentions this woman who constantly has visions and prophecy. He mentions Priscilla Maximilla. That's, that's the kind of complicated thing about Tertullian is he's perfectly happy with women prophesying and having a spoken voice, but there are other things he's unhappy with about women. And he would still understand prophecy to be like speaking on behalf of the Lord to the church. I think he has a very broad definition of it. So that would be included in it. It could be simply in, in an ecstatic state, in a almost trance-like state, relaying what you're seeing. So if you're seeing visions and you're talking about these things, that would be prophecy. Uh, he's seen, I think he's got a lot of overlap between prophecy and just preaching. So when the scriptures are read, then you have the teacher, probably the bishop, speaking on this, expounding it to the people, and that is that too is prophetic for Tertullian. Seems like another one of those issues where it's hard to triangulate his actual thoughts on how it works. Is that fair? Yeah, I think it's hard to to deduce his thoughts by looking at one thing he says in one text. Yeah, you, yeah, you really, with Tertullian, I think this is why he's been so often overlooked, is you, I think you have to read his whole corpus and find everything he says about it and contextualize every part. Who's he saying this against? Now let's try to draw some constellation of what he actually thinks. So for any listeners who are intimidated by that proposal yeah like what how would you advise someone who's not super familiar with tertullian much less the early church like where would you start reading tertullian uh well tertullian i think is somewhat easy to read now there's not always the best translations um reading him in latin is incredibly difficult because again he's making up latin words all the time um but I think if you find a good translation, try to start reading him and try to always don't, don't ask him to say something he's not saying. In his response to Marcion, what is he saying? OK, you'll understand him very clearly about what not to say with Marcion. And against Valentinus, what does he say not to do there? You know, and um, and in his text, 
on Christian practice, on baptism, on women's dress, on prayer. I think they're very straightforward. Uh, you can find what he says. The problem is when he has these little throwaway lines, um, his view of the afterlife or his view of prophecy or his view of Trinity or, you know, there, there's one way to read him where he looks very much like a subordinationist. And there's another way to read him where he looks like he's completely anticipated the, the Nicene Creed. And it's hard to know which is right. So I would say to, the, to your question about how to start reading him, just read him and concentrate on what he's actually saying. Don't try to make him say more than he's saying. And then uh, once you've, you know, somebody needs to take a step back and really work through his whole corpus afresh and try to do all of this uh, heavy lifting of, okay, what, what does he say at the end of the day? And what someone, does he believe at the end of the day? Someone we know of has done that, and you can buy his dissertation on Amazon. <laughs> no, well, I, I'm happy for you to buy my dissertation on Amazon. <laughs> my dissertation is really not dealing with his theology. It's really dealing with his context. So all the things I said about his life that we once thought, and if we throw all those things out, all we're really left with that we know about Tertullian is he claims Africa as his patria, his homeland. He talks about Carthage a lot. He talks about Carthaginian heroes and heritage a lot. So I trace all of that out. I think that's important to understanding him. But again, that's uh, someone else needs to come along. I'd love to one day. I, I don't know if I'll ever get around to it. I, my hope is to one day... Uh, go back through his whole corpus and ask, okay, what does he really believe about the doctrine of Trinity, about, I mean, even things that he's not going to use our words, like atonement, how would we read him on soteriology, things like that? Um, that's, that is a big project, though. So there's a dissertation out there waiting to be written <laughs> by... Probably a great dissertation waiting to be written on Tertullian's doctrine of the atonement, or a great dissertation on Tertullian's doctrine of eschatology. Or not his whole theology. Yeah, and then spend the rest of your life after the dissertation <laughs> putting together his whole something like systematic theology. Well, that was a good segue into um, what it means to be African for Tertullian. You said that's what your dissertation was on. Yeah. So um, just in our last little bit, tell us about Africanness and your take on like post-colonial readings of Tertullian or other uh, early African Christian writers. And maybe explain for um, people what post-colonialism means like why that's a useful category for you as well okay yeah well yeah so my so my entrance into this my 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 doctorate i wanted to look at this aspect of him what did it mean for him what what do we know that's left of him uh, of his story that he's from carthage okay well what did that mean what did it mean to be african in roman africa and this is a question that I've continued to be interested in uh, since then. And I've really spent the last 10 years working on, after Tertullian, what, the same question that I've tried to, to at least begin to explore with the writers who come after him, from Cyprian, Augustine, on into the period of Islam. So the, 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 the real answer to my book, uh, to, my, to your question, is my book's coming out in July. It's called Ancient African <laughs> Christianity. It's, uh, it's going to be 500 pages, I think. So, uh, you know, there, that's... That's the better answer. The short answer is, um, in Tertullian's time, North Africa, so that's the, the, the area west of Egypt, North Africa has been thoroughly colonized by Rome. But that does not mean that the non-Roman aspects of the region just disappeared. And this is one of the things that post-colonialism is actually very helpful in, in whether you're looking at contemporary, you know, modern colonization or other forms of it in, ancient, in the ancient world. We used to have this, frankly, Eurocentric assumption that a dominant culture is going to erase a primitive culture. And so if something like the British Empire moves into India, well, then India will become very British. Whereas often the opposite happens. Often, I mean, today, the number one import into England is curry. And uh, the number one drink of all English people everywhere is tea, right? This is uh, where the, the colonized actually transformed the colonizers. And so the point is with post-colonial post theory, you no longer assume that it's a one-way street, that Rome colonizes Africa and Africa becomes Roman. It did become Roman in some ways, but Africa also remained non-Roman in other ways. And so that's, that's a start, is trying to see how both can be true. Hmm. 
So Tertullian is an African and a Roman. And we should understand him within the context of both of those. Yes, that's right. In fact, the first ever recording, he tells us his name uh, is Tertullian, Tertullian, uh, Septimius Tertullian, Tertullianus. Uh, so he belongs to the Septimii family, which uh, may be the sa- same family from uh, that further eastern region of North Africa where the emperor Septimius Severus came from. Mm-hmm. Um the fir- after Tertullian tells us that name, the only uh, the next earliest mention of Tertullian is in uh, uh, Eusebius's Chronicon that Jerome uh, adds to, and, and we, we have Jerome's copy of it, and it calls him Tertullianus Affair, Tertullian the African. So he was African, there's no question about that, but what did it mean? It was often assumed in the, in the modern period that Rome colonized the place and therefore everything became Roman and so it was as Roman as Rome. Uh, that in the 20th century changed dramatically. Scott, historians of, of Rome and Roman imperialism now recognize that North Africa in one sense was the least Romanized of the provinces uh, because what you have is Roman buildings, Roman legions, Roman, Roman systems of trade implanted in North Africa. But you have very little record of uh, intermingling as far as marriage goes between local and Roman populations. And you have the ongoing uh, practice of the Punic language that existed all the way into Augustine's time and later. We have Punic inscriptions that continue into the Roman era. We have the practice of Punic religion and Punic gods that are still being venerated in North Africa. into the Roman and after the Roman period. So, yes, I think to understand these North African writers, you can't ignore the fact that they're Roman, but you also shouldn't ignore the fact that they're African. So, uh, Punic um, is how... I'm assuming this is developed from the earlier Phoenician. How close is it to, like, the Semitic languages in the world of Hebrew and Aramaic? Very close. That's right. So if you study, if you were to study Old Testament, for example, Hebrew Bible, you would have to learn Phoenician, Ugaritic, all these languages, because there's so much overlap in what's called the Semitic family. The Eastern Mediterranean, the Greek speakers called it Phoenician, the Latin called them Punic, and it's the exact same language uh, that's in North Africa. Now, there are some unique features. It is, you know, basically when you read about ancient Tyre and the, the Canaanites of our Old Testament, there's a thousand years removed between them and our real evidence about Hannibal and the Punic Wars. But the language would have been similar. So think maybe uh, Hebrew and Aramaic, how similar those two are. That's probably how you should think of, uh, you know, ancient Phoenician, uh, Bronze Period Phoenician, and Iron Period Punic. For... Um Listeners who aren't familiar with Hebrew and Aramaic, maybe Spanish and Portuguese? Uh, probably closer than that. Okay. Yeah. You would have still been able to communicate. Yeah. I mean, uh, I had one historian recently tell me he, he focuses on the Punic Wars and re- really the aftermath of the Punic Wars. So the Roman period, but he looks at Punic sources. He's, he thinks the interesting question for Christian sources is if you were to find a priest of Baal, and he probably would have been called a priest of Saturn because that's the Romanized name for him, but the priest of Baal in any North African city, if you were to hand them a Hebrew Bible and all you would have to teach them is the Hebrew alphabet and show them what the different letters mean, they would be able to read a large percentage of the Hebrew Bible once they learn the alphabet. Nice. Augustine in his sermons will often, speaking to his his, his North African uh, population in Hippo, he'll use Punic words. He'll say, now I looked up the Hebrew word, and this Hebrew word is having to do with the word red. And that's the same word we have in Punic for red. And that's why he uses the symbolism of red for the name Edom or something like that. Uh, so yes, this is still alive and well, and still very, very close to the Semitic language and thought world of the Hebrew Bible. So Augustine um, would have been a native in Punic and Latin? Uh, I think so. Nice. There hasn't been a, enough focus and study on this. Some scholars have said that Augustine's mother would have taught him Punic from childhood. And his son, Deodatus, we know spoke Punic. And we know his mother spoke Punic and only spoke Latin with a thick accent. So we, trying to determine what his 
first language is as opposed to second language is probably tough. Um, just because in an ancient world like this, you probably grew up speaking two or three languages. So we uh, mentioned on an earlier episode of the podcast that the Syriac fathers were especially important because they essentially spoke the language of Jesus and so probably imbibed some of the worldview that Jesus would have soaked in. So you can claim that for Augustine and possibly Tertullian as well. Uh, possibly, yes. Now, it's, it's probably, um, here's why I'm hesitant, is uh, let's go back to what I mentioned about the colonialist assumptions. When North Africa was first recolonized, first colonized by the French uh, in, in the modern era, uh, there was a, a flurry of scholarship that went and began digging and began rereading texts from North Africa in light of sort of this idea. They kind of had, had rediscovered just how, in their words, Semitic the North African Christians were. And so they became very excited about this because this explains, A, why North Africa was so easily Christianized. Christianity is an Eastern Semitic mystery cult that comes in, to, spreads from there. And so when this Eastern Semitic cult comes into a, a Semitic North Africa, it very easily won over the people. Now that, that all sounds very intriguing and plausible until you realize the assumption is they're thinking the Semitic mind is a quote-unquote primitive mind. And so it's really an ethnocentric assumption that they're making. And then they took the next step, Fast forward a few hundred years later when Islam spreads into North Africa, it too is coming from a somewhat Semitic fa language family, and then they move into North Africa. And again, this is a terrible summation of how the French scholars would have seen this in the early 20th, late 19th, early 20th century, but it would have been an ethnocentric assumption like those dumb Semitic Punic thinkers, they were too easily duped by Islam. So that's why I hesitate when to say just how close the tie is, because this kind of thinking has been used in a in a you know with horrible assumptions in the past. I think we of course have to reject that kind of ethnocentric assumptions, but I do think we can revisit the question: How do these? How does this? You know, there, I don't know the best term for this, but something like a Punic culture. How does that change our way of seeing how? Uh, North African Christians related to other cultures like Hebrew ancient uh, scriptures and the on, in, onslaught of Islam and Arab uh, Arab spread. So you're a good historian, uh, compelling historian. Is there any not purely historical but also ethical dimension to the reason that you choose post-colonial readings or do you think it's a purely uh, historically helpful way? To approach uh, Tertullian and whatnot. Yeah, I, I probably, I probably do have some sort of mixed motives on that. In that uh, a combination of motives, I mean, I I would like to think I'm a purist. I'm just a good historian looking for any historical tools. But if I'm really honest with myself, I I think, you know, one of the daunting tasks of trying to look at the what it means to be African in any time period, you know, is a a clear awareness that I am very much not African, right? I am the poster child for white privilege from Southern males, right, from the U.S. Um, and so there's no way I could reread Tertullian with an Afrocentric reading. Mm -hmm. To even do so would be presumptuous on my part. Um, so I think post-colonial theory helps me have not a neutral objective theory, but a way of bracketing my own privilege status, my own assumptions that come with that, and trying to find a way to, you know, to, to, to read the other uh, with without necessarily imposing my assumptions. So if there's any uh, Native Africans who also happen to be patristic scholars, the world is open for you to give your I, voice? I think there, I mean, I, I, I am of the opinion that the you know, those sorts of what would, many would call contextual readings, right? So liberation theology, feminist theology, African theology, I think those are incredibly helpful voices. I think those are valid voices and are needed. So we have, we have now Afrocentric readings of the Bible. I think those are helpful. I think we should have Afrocentric readings of all periods of church history, probably most importantly, African Christian history. Um, and I realize that sometimes those sorts of admittedly biased readings can bring other sets of problems. 
but so what? We, every every approach is going to have problems with it. Uh, I think the the more of these kinds of readings that we can get, the more diverse perspectives we can get, the better. And uh, I wish that we had more time to talk about um, diversity of readings and issues in postmodernism more generally. But hopefully, if you're willing, we'd like to have you on again to talk about that and maybe focus a bit more on the other African Augustine. If uh, if you're ever interested, sure, we, I'm sure we can make that happen. Dr. Wilhite, thanks again for uh, coming and talking to us and enlightening us about Tertullian and Africanness. Oh, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. <laughs>